think every time I see myself on that screen, I'm reminded of DZ, our worship leader. He has uh, three little girls, and the littlest one was talking to me. We were back behind the soundboard, and I was kind of playing around with her like, I'm going to get you. And she stopped and put her hands on her hips, and she said, I ain't afraid of you. <laughs> and I said, why not? She said, because you're old. <laughs> no, wait a second. I said, how do you know I'm old? She said, you got white hair and a loose face. So you guys let DZ know how much we've appreciated him being around here, part of, no, I'm just kidding. Got a loose face. I went home and told Lord, I pretty much from the mouth of babes, you know what I'm saying, right? Well, this is the second week of our series, Battle Tested, and it's a series about spiritual warfare. We're talking about the ultimate battle that we are in as Christians, the battle between good and evil, and we're discovering how we can win that battle, how we have the upper hand because greater is he that sent us than he that is in the world. And if you weren't here last weekend, I would encourage you, if you're first time First of all, welcome to Hope, but if you weren't here, uh, go back online to the app. You can listen to last week's message. It's just way too much for us to review. It kind of builds the foundation for where we're going in this series. But if you were here last week, we learned that Satan, as a Christian, he is, he is our enemy, and he's out to get us. He's out to destroy us, and he's trying to figure out a way to get into our lives. John, Jesus talked about that in John chapter 10. He's looking for a way in. He said, he can't get in through me, but he'll look for a way. And Jesus says, if he gets involved in your life, he's coming to do three things. He's coming to steal, to kill, and destroy. Now, this weekend, we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about different ways that, as Christians, we actually open the door that allows Satan to come into our lives, and often he can get a foothold in our life. And when I talk about opening a door, uh, think about it this way. Suppose you're sitting home one evening and there's a knock at your door and you go and you look through the peephole and standing on your front, front porch, there's three men wearing black, you know, with a black ski mask and they got clubs and knives and guns and you look at them and then you open the door, crack it and walk away. You say, Mike, that's stupid. Nobody would ever do that. That's true. But you know what? Spiritually speaking, Often in our spiritual lives, without even realizing it, we crack the door to Satan. We open it. We walk away. And based on what Jesus said in John chapter 10, when we do that, the evil one will come in. And he's going to come in. He's going to steal. He's going to kill. And he's going to destroy. And there are all different kinds of ways we're going to see over the next few weeks that we can open the door for Satan to get a stronghold in our life. Continued sin. If you're a Christian and you just continue in sin, you don't address it, you don't deal with it, it's an opportunity for Satan to have a stronghold in your life. Anger can be an open door. Uh, the refusal to forgive someone who has hurt you could be an open door. Things of the occult like seances and fortune telling and tarot cards and, and Ouija boards and horoscopes. Good graces. If you want to know your future, just read the Bible. It's right there. But those things of, of the occult, they are, they are ways that we open the door to satanic activity in our lives. And I know a lot of you, because of curiosity, that's really what you want me to focus on in this series. And we will talk in a few weeks about the importance of shutting those different doors in our life. And if we have opened them, how do we shut them and how do we rid ourselves of that influence? But in, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about three areas where as even mature, committed Christians, we can open the door to Satan and his schemes. And in doing so, we can actually allow Satan to have a stronghold in our life without even realizing it. And over the next few, few weeks, I'm gonna, I'm gonna base this on a verse that's found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. It says this, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And I believe that these three areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these are three major doors 
That as Christians, when we crack them open, you've got to understand the enemy will come in and he will set up camp in your life. Now, we're going to take them in reverse order. We're going to begin this weekend by talking about the pride of life, and then we'll talk about the lust of the eyes, and then we'll talk about the lust of the flesh. And it always amazes me that whenever I address the topic of pride, how many people are so proud of the fact that they're not prideful. Okay, but this weekend, I want to show you over the next few minutes three ways that pride reveals itself in our lives. And I want you to see as Christians how each one of these areas has potential to be an open door for Satan to get in our lives. And as I said, if we crack it and walk away, he will come in. And he's coming in to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Let me just give you the first one, then we will unpack it. As Christians, when we trust in our own strength, we become prideful and it opens a door for Satan to go to work in our lives. Let me show you an example of this in the life of Peter. If you have your Bible, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. If not, we'll put it up on the screens. Jesus is speaking. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked. By the way, that word asked in the Greek means he has demanded permission. If you have a New American Standard this weekend, that's what it says. He has demanded permission to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. This is an amazing passage in the Bible. Here we have Jesus telling Peter, who was a disciple, someone who was a follower, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He has demanded permission to wear you out. Jesus says, the good news is this, I prayed for you. Now, we know that the New Testament was written in Greek. And uh, the Greek often has two or three different definitions for the same word. We saw this last week when we talked about defining the word demon possession, that the word possession in the Greek has two different meanings. One means to own. It doesn't mean to own. The other one means to have controlling influence, and that's what it's talking about. In the same way, this is not the common Greek word for ask. This Greek word for ask means this, to ask for something and to receive what one has asked for. To ask with success, to ask and receive. So this could literally be translated, Satan has demanded and received permission to sift you like wheat. By the way, this word demanded also implies that Satan had the right to ask this. In other words, there was an open door in Peter's life, and I think that the open door was that Peter by this point in trusting God and following Jesus, had, 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 was beginning to trust in his own strength. In other words, he's struggling with pride. And I say that because I want a conversation I want to show you, a conversation that took place right before this. Luke doesn't record this conversation, but the other gospel writers do. So let's look at it. Mark chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, you will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, and he quotes from the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, I will strike the shepherd, a reference to Jesus, and the sheep, those would be his followers, will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now look at this. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically. You could say arrogantly. You could use the word pridefully. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. So Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he says, you're all going to deny me. And we know that to be true. When Jesus was arrested and taken to the cross, his disciples, they scattered like rats on a sinking ship. But yet Peter responds, hey, these other losers may walk away. They may deny you. But Jesus, I want you to understand, I will never deny you. And I think Jesus is like, whoa, God, what, what part of all do you not understand? 
The Old Testament even says that you are going to deny me. And, and Peter's like, well, you know what? Then the Bible must be wrong because I am not going to deny you. So let's pick up the story of Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. By the way, you got to be feeling pretty good about yourself to rebuke Jesus, right? So he took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Now watch this. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Jesus addresses Satan in a person. By the way, as a side note, right before this went down is when Jesus changed Peter's name to Simon. Okay. Simon comes from the word that means dove-like. It's the idea of being shifty, moody, vacillating, not very dependable. Jesus changed his name to Peter or Cephas, which means the rock. Now he calls him Satan. I'm guessing Peter's thinking, I like Peter better. I would rather go with Peter, right? But my point is this. This is what I want you to see. Peter was arrogant. He was prideful. He trusted in his own strength, and as a result, Jesus said to Peter, Satan's coming. He has a right. You've opened a door to him. And sure enough, we know the story that later Peter denied Jesus. Now, let me just say this. Let's not be too tough on Peter because let's be honest. A lot of us as committed, mature Christians fall into this trap. I cannot tell you in my lifetime how many times I have fallen into this trap. And I'll be honest with you, most of them have come since I went to seminary and since I became a pastor and since God began to use me. Because after a while, you kind of feel like you're strong enough, you're mature enough that you can handle anything. Let's be honest, after we've been Christians for a while, it's so easy for us to get a little lax, to, to begin to rely on our own strength to, to deal with temptation and to resist temptation. But you gotta understand, it's pride, it's an open door, and it is an opportunity, an invitation for Satan to go to work in our lives. See, I think this is what happened to David. You read about King David in the Old Testament. What a strong man, what a strong leader. Do you know this says that David had never lost a battle? But then one day, when he sent his troops off the battle, and he should have been with them, he decided to kick his heels up at the palace. This is what C.S. Lewis and Screwtape's letters refer to, the long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity. And as a lot of us as Christians, we get to that point in our lives where we think we've got it together, and we enter into those long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity. And it was then when David had decided to stay home that he saw Bathsheba, that he lusted for her, that he committed adultery, that he had her husband killed to cover it all up. Let me tell you something. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Do you ever find yourself saying things like, I cannot believe what they did? Do you ever find yourself saying things like, I would never do that? Be really, really careful. You're on thin ice. When we trust in our own strength, We've given into pride. We've opened a door in our life. Second, when we trust in our own righteousness, we're prideful, and it becomes 
an open door. You can see this in the life of Job. It's a very interesting passage. Let's pick it up, Job chapter one, verse six. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Very unique passage. By the way, Satan is not strolling around heaven like he owns the place. When he comes before God, the creator of the universe, his creator, he comes with hat in hand. He comes like a private entering into the presence of a five-star general. But he came before, and then says, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan asked the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. So Satan's like, yeah, why wouldn't he be faithful to you? But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And I'm guessing soon after that, Job woke up one morning to a day that began just like any other day. He probably put on his robe, went out to the end of the driveway, got his newspaper, settled down with a cup of coffee. But then all of a sudden, the calmness of that new day was just interrupted and destroyed when servants began to pour into his kitchen. And they were like, Job, it's a good thing you're sitting down. We got bad news. First of all, all of your livestock has been stolen. All of your sheep and camels have been destroyed. All of your employees have been murdered. And all of your children, Job, all 10 of them have been killed in a freak storm. And all of a sudden, Job finds himself standing beside not one but 10 fresh graves. But if you read the story, you will discover that Job remained faithful. So when you get to Job chapter two, Satan returns to the presence of God, and God's like, how's my main man Job doing, right? And Satan, well, he's awesome. But you know what they say, you got your health, you got everything. You let me touch his body, and let's see what happens. And it wasn't long after that that Job lost his health, and at one scene we pick him up, he's sitting in an ash pile, just picture this, sitting in an ash pile with boils all over his body, scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery for relief. It got so bad that he said in Job chapter 19, verse 17, my breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my whole family. I mean, that's how his life had deteriorated. I mean, you were talking about kicking a man while he's down. By the way, you've screwed up our lives, honey, and your breath stinks, right? That's where, Job, that's where Job finds himself. And for 31 chapters, Job has three friends that come along and they try to comfort him. And they ask Job over and over again, are you sure you didn't do something to bring this on yourself. Are you sure there's not some kind of open door in your life? And Job responds over and over again, I have done absolutely nothing wrong to deserve this. In fact, he lists all the things that he has done right. But when you get to chapter 32, there's a young man named Elihu who's been just kind of sitting back and watching all of this take place. And then finally he speaks up and is like, ah, I can't take it anymore. I assume that you old dudes, since you're wiser than me, you would eventually get it right. But since none of you have figured it out yet, I've got to say something. Let me tell you what the problem is here. And it says in Job 32, verse 1, these three men stopped answering Job. Now, notice this. This is the key phrase. Because he was righteous in his own eyes. If you're new to church, the word righteous means right standing before God. 
From his perspective, he had done nothing wrong. He had a right standing before God. But notice this, Elihu, son of hard word, the buzzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. In fact, Elihu says in chapter 33, verse eight, you have said in my hearing, I heard these very words come right out of your mouth, Job. I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin. By the way, you would have to be Jesus for that to be true. And I cannot tell you how many times in my office I've had people whose lives are unraveling say, I don't know why this is going on. I've done everything right. I haven't done anything wrong. My point is this. This was the open door in Job's life. He thought he was righteous because of what he did. He forgot that he was righteous because of whom he knew. But if you take the time to read Job's entire discourse, you'll discover it's all about what he's done. He says, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've never done this, I've never done this, I've never done this, I've never done this. And I point that out because let's be honest, a lot of us as we mature in our Christian faith, we begin to struggle with pride in this area. See, we forget that one day we heard the gospel and the light came on that we were lost and that we needed saving and that God gave us a savior in the place of his, and, and, and so he could die on the cross to pay for our sins, die on our behalf, and we accept Jesus Christ as our savior. God saves us by his grace. And then five years later, we're leading a small group, teaching a class serving on boards and committees, memorizing the Bible. You know, we've stopped doing all the wrong things. We've started doing all the right things. And now we serve and we give and we pray. And all of a sudden we start to think that we are righteous because we are so good. We are righteous because we have got it together. But when we begin to trust in our own righteousness, you gotta understand that's just pride. And it's an open door. Jesus gave a great example of this kind of pride, Luke chapter 18, verse 10. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. <clears throat> the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. You ever prayed it? Maybe not just like that, but have you thought it? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get. In other words, I am so good. I am so glad that I've got it all together. In fact, compare me to anybody else, you'll see just how good I am. By the way, let me just say something here. That's why people who aren't Christians don't come to church. Understand, they love Jesus. They just can't stand us. And you know why? Often because after we've been a Christian, we adopt that kind of attitude. And that was Job's attitude. See, here's the only problem with that attitude. God showed up. And God's like, whoa, Job, do you really, do you really want to go there? Do you really want to compare yourself to, hey, listen, God's like, you want to compare yourself to someone? Compare yourself to me. In fact, let me show you how God responded to Job's pride beginning in Job 38, verse one. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge. That's the Hebrew, basically it says this, who is this idiot that's talking? That's what God says. Brace yourself like a man, I will question you, and you shall answer me. First of all, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? In other words, where were you when I created the world? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know, you can just hear the sarcasm. 
How about verse 12? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? In other words, have you ever told the sun when to rise and where to rise? Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hell? Verse 24, what is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Verse 34, can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? In other words, can you make it rain? Do you send the lightning bolts on their ways? Do they report to you? Here we go. And then God ends it and wraps it up in Job 40, verse 8. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? God says, would you put me down to make yourself look good? And if you've read the book, you know that it was at this point that Job repents. Now, let me just say this. I've seen a lot of mature Christians begin to trust in their own righteousness. And to be honest, a lot of you really are righteous as as far as it relates to your lifestyle. But you gotta remember, living righteously does not make us righteous. Only what Jesus Christ has done for us makes us righteous. So think about this. Pride trusting in your own strength. Pride is trusting in your own righteousness. Both are open doors. But I think this third one is the place where we really struggle. So I'm gonna spend a little bit more time on that. When we trust in our own wisdom, when we get to the place where we're like, I don't need any help, I don't need any advice, I've got it figured out. When we trust in our own wisdom, we are prideful and it becomes an open door for Satan in our lives. The story I want you to see in 1 Kings 22, and it may be one of those stories, maybe you've read it, you probably haven't, but it's a story about Ahab. Ahab was the king of Israel. And if you are familiar with Ahab, you know that he eventually married a woman named Jezebel. Say Jezebel, you've heard that name. Understand Jezebel was not from Israel. Jezebel was actually from the nation of Phoenicia, the area of Phoenicia. Phoenicia was known as being a place of the occult. Many theologians believe that it was Jezebel that introduced the occult to Israel. And when she came to Israel, when she married Ahab, she brought along with her 850 prophets, false prophets, who were on her payroll. You may remember the story uh, where uh, Elijah faces these prophets on Mount Carmel. He calls down fire from heaven, and then he destroys, he kills all 850 of those prophets. But her husband, Ahab, who's Jewish, whose God is Jehovah, also had 400 false prophets on his payroll. He took care of their food. He took care of their lodging. He made sure they had health care and free Wi-Fi. And in return, they basically told him whatever it was that he wanted to hear. Now, understand, in our story, the nation of Aram has captured the Israeli city of Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, the king of Israel, wants to attack the king of Aram. He wants to get their city back. So he places a call to Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, these are, I wish I'd have named my kid that, Jehoshaphat. That's a name, that's a good name. Right there. Anyway, Jehoshaphat was the good king of Judah. He says, I want you to join me, go to battle with me, let's get this city back. Now let me give you a little Hebrew history. There was a civil war in Israel in 930 B.C. The nation was made up of 12 tribes. Two of the tribes split and went to the north. They, when you read the Old Testament, they're referred to as the northern kingdom or, or the nation of Israel. The other 10 uh, uh, tribes went to the south. They became the southern kingdom or the nation of Judah. That will help you as you're reading through the Old Testament. So he gets Jehoshaphat. He says, let's go together. And so Ahab, he calls his 400 false prophets who remember always just tell him what he wants to hear. And he says, listen, I'm thinking about going 
in the battle to get Ramoth Gilead back. What do you think I should do? And these false prophets respond, hey, king, if that's what you want to do, that's what you ought to do. Because you are our great king, and not only that, you pay all of our bills, right? And so, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 7, but Jehoshaphat, after hearing these 400 false prophets, he picks up right away, they're a bunch of whack jobs. So he says this, is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? In other words, isn't there someone who can speak for God on this matter? And the king of Israel, Ahab, answered Jehoshaphat, there is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord. But notice this, I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. His name's Micaiah. In other words, I don't like him because he doesn't tell me what I want to hear, right? And Jehoshaphat's like, I don't get it. What are you talking about? And Ahab says, well, three, three years ago, I asked him something, and he said I was bad. And he said I was going to die. So I put him in prison. And Jehoshaphat's like, you're an idiot. Get him out here. Let's talk to this guy. So they go get Micaiah out of prison, and Ahab says, we want to go in, we want to get our city back, should we go to battle? And Micaiah answers and says, Ahab, if you go to war, if you listen to those false prophets of yours, you're going to die in battle. And so it says in 1 Kings twenty-two eighteen, 18, the king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me but only bad? But then Micaiah explains to Ahab how he knows this. Now, you got to stick with me here, verse 19. Micaiah continued, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. Now notice this, with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. Understand this term, multitude of heavens, sometimes it refers to good angels, sometimes it refers to bad angels. I think that there are both in this scene. I'll show you why in just a second. They're both there, but I want to show you why I think it. The good are on the right, the better on the left, when Jesus comes back and judges mankind at the end of the world, what's going to happen? His believers are going to be on the right. I think there's a sign here. The unbelievers are going to be on the left. But if you don't believe it, there's, a, there's, there's an example of this, 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 5. It says, in the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he, Manasseh, who was one of the worst kings of Israel, built altars to all the starry hosts. The same Hebrew word translated starry hosts is the word that's translated multitudes of heaven in 1 Kings 22, 19. And if you read the story of Manasseh, you will discover that he was into the occult. He worshiped demons. In fact, verse 6 goes on to say, he sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced divination, salt omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. So understand that when Micah refers to, or when Micaiah refers to the multitudes of heaven, some of these are demons, they're evil spirits. If you still don't believe me, let's go back to 1 Kings 22. Let's pick up the story. Micaiah continued, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab? Who will influence Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? So God is setting up Ahab. One suggested this. Another that finally a spirit. By the way, good angels are never referred to as spirits in the Bible. You, that's just something you can follow away. Good angels are never referred to as spirits. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. Well, I will go and, look at this, and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets, all of his false prophets, he said. 
You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So God gives permission to this evil spirit. And then Micaiah wraps, wraps it up. He says, so now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all of these prophets of yours. In other words, God has set you up. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Now, there's a couple of things you need to understand about this story. First of all, you need to understand that God is in control. There is no battle going on between God and the forces of evil. Satan, as we saw last week, all of his fallen angels, they are created beings. God is the creator. God is in charge. But this is what you got to understand, and you can see this especially throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes God will use the forces of evil to fulfill his purpose. In fact, think about it. In this story, we have God sitting on his throne and a lying, deceiving spirit talking to him, and God gives orders to this deceiving spirit. My point is God is in control, but what I want you to see is this, and this is what I need you to hear. When you begin to rely on your own wisdom as a Christian instead of the wisdom of God, you are opening the door to the enemy. And God may grant the enemy permission to come in and sift you like wheat. He may grant the enemy permission to work you over, and in just a minute I'll answer the question, why would God do that? But the problem in this story was that Ahab trusted in his own false prophets instead of listening to the prophet who actually spoke for God. See, he knew better. He, he, was, he was smarter. Do you know what's going to happen to you as a Christian when you get to the place where you think you're smarter than God? God's going to allow Satan to do his thing. We'll talk about it another week, but you can see a story of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where it basically says, we're going to turn him over to Satan. Let Satan wear him out. Let him hit rock bottom. And then hopefully when Satan's finished with you, you'll repent. But you need to understand in this whole process, God is in control. But when you trust in your own wisdom and you don't listen to God's people and you don't listen to God's word, you are in trouble. A door is open. When you read the scriptures, and let's face it, people, nobody likes to admit it in our culture anymore, but there are absolutes in God's word. And there are times where God says, this is wrong, don't do this, don't be a part of that. But even as Christians, sometimes we get so wise and so sophisticated, we think, well, that just doesn't make, just doesn't make sense, doesn't fit my moral code, it's so old school, God's so outdated. I'm gonna go ahead and do what I believe is right. It's just common sense, right? When you do that, you've opened the door. You want me to prove it to you? James chapter three, verse 14. This is what James says. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, in other words, this kind of wisdom that you use to justify your actions, to justify your disobedience when it's contrary to the word of God, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, what's that next word? Demonic. In other words, James is saying, even as Christians, there is a time that you believe that God is speaking to you. I've had people say, I know this having this affair is wrong, but I tell you what, I stand before God and I really believe he's okay with it. There are times when you feel like God is talking to you and I'm telling you, there's a demon that's giving you advice. It's not God. When you're smarter than God, you have a pride issue. When you have a pride issue, you have an open door. And when you have an open door, 
the wolf is going to come in. So let's go back to that question I told you I would answer. Why would God grant permission for Satan to attack a Christian? We saw it in the life of Peter. We saw it in the life of Job. Satan uh, asked and was granted permission. Why, Why would God do that? Well, here's the answer. It is always, 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 always for our good. Let me show you a verse that explains why God would do this. And this is probably the most misquoted verse in the Bible. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Most people quote this verse and what do they say? Pride goes before a fall. Isn't it right? How many times, you, oh, you better be careful. Pride goes before the fall. Doesn't say that. It says a haughty spirit goes before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. So when you have pride in your life, What's going to happen? The answer is you're going to be destroyed. And this is what God will often do. In his grace, he sends the enemy, and the enemy takes you into bondage. And he will wear you out. And hopefully in that bondage, you cry out and say, God, set me free. And if you ask God to set you free, he will set you free. You see, from God's perspective, it's like, pushing someone out of the way of an oncoming bus. Yeah, they may get bruised and battered. They may break a couple of bones, but they don't get killed. They're not destroyed. And that's why God does why he does. God says, I'd rather see you get beat up. I would rather see you get beat down by the evil one and come to your senses than to watch you get destroyed. Think of it this way. Peter and Job were both influenced by Satan, but they repented. Peter in Acts chapter two went out and preached the message that 3,000 people converted to Christianity. He became the pillar of the first century New Testament church. If you read the book of Job, you see that by the end of the story, everything was restored to him twofold. God doubled everything he had lost except his kids. He lost 10 kids, God only gave him 10 back. See, he didn't give him 20. I call that grace. That's grace right there, right? (laughs) Ahab, on the other hand, refused to repent. God sent Micaiah Micaiah to say to him, you're going to fall. If you listen to those false prophets and go into battle, you're going to fall. But Ahab thought that he was smarter than God. In fact, do you know what happened? He took the advice of the false prophets. He went to war. He convinced Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, to wear his kingly garments in the battle, thinking that Ahab would wear his also, but Ahab didn't wear his kingly garments. He dressed up like a common soldier and just stayed in the back of the battle. He's thinking, they'll kill Jehoshaphat because he's dressed like a king, and I'll get Judah, and I'll put the nations of Judah and Israel back together. I'll rule all of them. So the enemy chases Jehoshaphat, finds out it's Jehoshaphat. When they discover it's not Ahab, they quit chasing him. Jehoshaphat gets away, but this is what it says in 1 Kings 22, verse 34. But someone drew his bow at random, and hit the king of Israel, Ahab, between the sections of armor, and he died. You see, God had warned him, but some guy <laughs> shoots a random arrow into the air, and God, right, God, God, God guides it right into the joint of Ahab's armor, and it kills him. But you got to remember, God in his grace told him, it's going to happen if you don't listen to me. Pride is depending on your own strength, your own righteousness, your own wisdom. Pride is a trap that the strong, the righteous, and the wise often fall into. 
And that's why you have to trust in God's strength and God's righteousness and God's wisdom. It is the only way to shut the door to pride. Now, I want us to bow our heads. I want us to close our eyes for just a second. I just want you to not even look around, not think about anything, not think where you're going to go to eat after church. I just want you to think about this. I want you to honestly ask yourself this question. God, do I have pride in my life? And be honest. God, do I have pride in my life? Pride is an open door. You've granted permission. And all of us have had this happen. I'm telling you, all of my failures, most of my screw-ups are a result of pride. You know what's interesting? When it happens, you know what we cry out? We cry out, God, please forgive me. This weekend, what if we were to cry out before something happened? What if we were to cry out right now? So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to close in prayer in just a second. And I'm going to dismiss everyone. If this is an area of your life where you are struggling and you would like someone to pray with you, I'm going to ask you just to stay in your seat as everyone leaves. If you're here and you are willing to pray with someone, I'm going to ask you just to stay in your seat. And when everyone leaves, if you want prayer, and this is going to take, you're going to have to swallow your pride on this one. I'm going to ask you just to get up and come right down here to the front. You can come down here. You can kneel. You can sit in the chairs at all of our campuses. And then if you're willing to pray with someone, I would like you just to come down and identify one of those individuals, men with men, women with women, and pray with them. Now, let me just say this. There's nothing magical about coming to the front, but it may just simply be an expression of you humbling yourself before God. Because see, this is what happens when we've been Christians for a while. After a while, we think that we're so strong and we think that we're so righteous and we think that we're so wise. We believe that we can figure it out and work through everything ourselves. But when we have to confess our sins to someone else, as James tells us to do, and when we ask someone to pray for us, it's simply an expression of us just humbling ourselves before God. So if you would like to pray about your pride, if you would like to shut that door, after I dismiss everyone, you come on down, and then those of you would just wait and then come and pray with someone. Father, thank you. You're a good God. Oh, you're so patient. I mean, Father, even in the story of Ahab, years later, earlier, you confronted him with something, and he repented, and you gave him three more years. But he finally got to the place where he thought he knew it all. And I just wonder, as Christians, how many times in our life nobody can tell us anything? We think we have all the answers. Father, that's pride. We've seen from your word that sometimes you will actually give permission to the enemy to wear us out. Hopefully, that we'll hit bottom and we'll turn to you. Father, this weekend, I would love for us to turn to you before we hit bottom because you're a God of grace and love and mercy. And you'll shut that door and you'll love us. I always think of the prodigal when he came to his senses. When he came to his senses. For those of us at all of our campuses that just need to come to our senses this weekend and be honest about who we are and where we are in our walk with you, may we deal with it this weekend. In your name we pray. In your name we pray.
you're dismissed. If you would just leave quietly for those of you who are going to stay.